when I left my corporate job, I had traction. I had made money doing this thing. It wasn't a lot of money, but there was proof in the pudding that A, I'd already made money doing it, and B, more people were wanting this service. And so make sure that there's some kind of proof in the pudding that whatever your business venture is going to be or whatever your investing is going to be or whatever actually already has some traction. Because I think it's very tempting for all of us to think, oh, well, this thing on paper would make total sense. Like, yeah, that would be perfect. This is how this is going to go. But we don't always know that for reasons we can't always explain. Like, just make sure there's traction before you even think about leaving. And then when you think about leaving, you know, what's your personal comfort level? This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 258 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Ali Boone on the show. Ali was an aerospace engineer who left her 9-to-5 job by investing in turnkey rental properties. In this episode, Ali will share her story on how she got into real estate investing, why she decided to leave her full-time job, and the challenges she faced while making the transition to becoming a full-time investor. She'll go over who turnkey properties are best suited for and will share her predictions for 2022 for people who want to start investing in real estate this year. So if you want to learn about turnkey properties and you're thinking about leaving your full-time job, then you definitely need to listen to this episode. All right, Ali, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Thanks so much for having me. So I am a corporate dropout. I left my nine to five for real estate investing slightly unexpectedly. All I knew was I wanted out of my corporate job. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I ended up diving into real estate. I focused, it wasn't what I started with, but I ended up in turnkey rental properties. And what ended up happening is I was buying them for myself because I had been looking for investment options, but flipping didn't really appeal to me. You know, something with doing that much work, I was not looking for more work. I was looking for passive stuff. And I found out about turnkeys. This was during the crash. So turnkeys had really kind of made a big name for themselves. And everyone suddenly wanted to know what I was buying. They're like, how are you buying rental properties that you're not doing all this work on? And so I ended up really just kind of working with other people, telling them what providers I was buying through, helping them through the buying process. And it became a whole business in itself. I ended up leaving corporate. I started investing in 2011, so right at the 10-year mark, and then I left corporate in 2012. For the last decade, I've been helping people buy turnkeys, support them through the process, be their emotional support dog. And then a couple of years ago, I had kind of been doing real estate investing, coaching, and business consulting on the side, just kind of as opportunities came up. But with COVID and everything else, the inventory shortage, I really picked up a lot on the coaching and consulting side. And that's been kind of my new thing in the last couple of years. It's been a lot of fun. It's been funny because most of the people I work with are not doing turnkeys, which has been great for me because I finally get to kind of, you know, look outside of turnkey world. I still love Turnkey World, but it's yeah, it's a love-hate thing. But yeah, so about the last 10 years, the entrepreneur investor journey and just kind of riding life's wave. That's awesome. And you know, I was looking at your bio. It seems like you and I have very similar backgrounds. So you were in aerospace before, right? Mm-hmm. Aerospace engineering. So same as me. I was working at Boeing and Northrop Grumman. Get out. I was working at Lockheed. Oh, really? Oh, so we're competitors. That's what we're saying. No, no, no. So actually, we're co-collaborators. So for the last like four years or so, I worked up in Sunnyvale. There was a Lockheed facility there. Yeah. And Northrop Grumman were like co-partners on this one program. So we were in the Lockheed facility. They have a huge facility up there. Exactly. So like I know that feeling like, okay, this is a corporate life. But personally, I probably felt like you did, like not really fulfilled. And I didn't see a good career trajectory in defense. And that's eventually why I wanted to also find my way out. But can you kind of share your experience? Like, what was your entry into aerospace and why did you decide to leave? Well, so the entry was, I tell people all the time, like I grew up with the famous mindset of go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a secure job, retire when you're 65 kind of thing. And I had my family, a lot of my family's in aviation. So I had actually started flying airplanes. So through grad school, I was working on my master's in aerospace engineering. I was flight instructing. And so I got into the pilot thing kind of naturally. And I went to school to, to get a professional pilot degree. And when I got there, I kind of thought, why would I need a professional pilot? What if I don't want to be a professional pilot? And so naively at the time, I was like, oh, because I can get all my flight ratings outside of college. I don't need a degree to be a pilot. 
And I thought, oh, well, what's similar to being a pilot? I was like, engineering. It's got to be the same thing. And I knew, you know, it's secure job, great money, all that kind of stuff. And turns out engineering and piloting are complete polar opposites. I mean, it's really being a pilot is big picture and engineer is details, like down to the teeny weeny details. And quite frankly, I don't care about details. Like I'm, I'm more the big picture person. But again, I was just kind of naively doing this out of what I thought I needed to do to get the secure job. And it sounded fancy. And I was very fortunate through my aerospace engineering career. I got to do the coolest of the cool. I mean, I ended as a top secret flight test engineer. I've been to all the locations I can't talk about, worked on project, you know, seen all sorts of cool things I can't tell people about. Like if it wasn't working for me at that point, it was never going to work. And that was part of my task for myself was I didn't want to quit it. I knew the minute I walked in my cubicle, my first cubicle, first time ever, I knew it wasn't going to be for me, but I had also just been in school for like, I don't know, eight, nine years. And I thought I might as well give it a whirl. But so I tried to find the coolest of the cool. I did all of that. But like you, we used the word fulfilled earlier. And I just, it wasn't my thing. I don't like working for people. I don't like details, which really puts Flush's engineering down the toilet. And just the corporate setting isn't me. I mean, I'm not even good at dressing in business casual. Like it's, none of it was me. And so it was really kind of a, I've got to be more true to myself. The job wasn't miserable, but the life is miserable. And so, I mean, I knew, like I said, from the minute I walked in my first cubicle, I had to get out. It just took me about five years to kind of figure out how to get out because I could fly airplanes and do some engineering stuff. But how is that actually going to get me out of a corporate job? And that's what I was really exploring. And I didn't really mean to stumble into real estate. It just kind of, you know, all paths kind of led that direction. And I ended up there. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Like you mentioned, you said it took about five years for you to go from, all right, I don't really want to be here forever to, okay, I can finally leave my job. What were those five years like? And I guess, how did you plan it out? Yeah, well, there was no planning. So it really was five years of me. I started by just diving into anything I could find. I was reading every book. So I didn't know what the path out was. I was taking every piece of information. And I was reading books. I read most of the Rich Dad series. Like I was more of a books person. I'm not really a scroll through the internet kind of person. I was reading, I have a whole bookshelf full of all these books that were helping. And what I would do is I would connect with different authors that were preaching or teaching things that resonated. Like I wanted passive income. I wanted lifestyle design. I wanted all these things. So the people who were kind of pitching those ideas, I would read more. And I, at one point, kind of came to the conclusion, just based on everything I dove into, I was either going to have to start a business or do something in real estate investing. Those seem to be the two things that get people out of their job. And for the longest time, I was researching like crazy. And eventually, I was getting no traction whatsoever. And I was like, okay, well, what gives? And I realized I was researching too little about too many things. Like I needed to hone in on something and dive in deeper in order to get that traction. So I was like, okay cool. I either need to start a business or get into real estate investing. Which one do I want to do? And I was like, I'll start a business. I didn't know what kind of business, but at least it was a step. I'm like, I can make traction. But a couple of weeks after I decided to start a business, because I had signed up for every email newsletter under the sun because I was bored and trying to get out of my job. And there was this random real estate investing opportunity. It was not turnkeys. It was something different. But I had just out of boredom watched the webinar on it. And I was like, well, that sounds kind of cool. And that put the idea in my head. Well, while I'm trying to start this unknown business and trying to get out of corporate, I might as well do something smart with my money because I actually have money and a paycheck and all that kind of stuff. So I started in on that. And next thing I know, the snowball just kind of started with real estate, the people I met, the networking, it just kind of almost accidentally happened. So it pulled me out of that starting the business idea, got me into investing for myself. I got obsessed with it. I was like, Oh my God, I want so many properties. Cause this was during the crash. Like everything was on sale. I was like, I want more. So I was spending my time trying to figure out creative financing, buying properties, learning what I needed to do. Turnkeys came into the picture. I was buying turnkeys. Suddenly people want to know about turnkeys. And it became a business accidentally because I was just telling anyone who would listen about it. I was so excited and people started buying turnkeys. And eventually some of the turnkey folks came to me and said, listen, if you'll get your real estate license, we can pay you referral fees. You're already sending people to us. And I was like, huh, what? Well, cool, free money. Like, why not have a free income stream? Still not putting two and two together that this could be big enough to actually get me out of corporate. So the irony of it all is I ended up starting a business in real estate investing. <laughs> you know, I thought those were going to be two separate things. I didn't know they would be one, but 
Uh, I started it really as a side hustle and then I started writing about it online and that's when Bigger Pockets reached out and they were like, Hey, we've got this website. Do you want to write for us? And I ended up writing for them for years and that just brought the audience in, in the masses. And next thing I knew, I was talking to so many people about turnkeys and helping them buy and helping them through the buying process that at some point I had to make the decision. I knew I was going to leave corporate anyways, but if I had had a choice, I would have waited until I had more money in the bank, you know, more solid footing. But because I was working classified projects, I didn't have access. I was gone Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday every week in places that I couldn't get on normal computers. And so I couldn't build the real estate side more than I already had. So I was just like, well, hold my nose and jump into the deep end because here we go. And then it's just been the entrepreneur journey ever since then. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that is a pretty big con to working defense. I would say like the job itself isn't super grueling. Like we do have our good uh, like nine to five and then we can go home and enjoy our, our time. But during the day you are like locked out, right? We're in a secret location. There's no internet service. You can't bring your phone inside. So you cannot do any kind of business at all. Not even take a phone call. Yeah. It's like, how am I supposed to attend to someone trying to buy a product? They're like, we have a client. I'm like, I don't even have my phone. Yeah, exactly. And that really, it was a very unique logistical problem that I had because most people can go home at five o'clock. You know, if I could have gone home at five o'clock and worked on the real estate stuff all evening, oh, I could have been miles ahead by the time I finally quit the corporate job. I don't say I rushed it, but I got out so fast that I actually still had a property under contract and there was a delay because of, I don't remember, a deed issue. I don't, some kind of drama with this property couldn't close quite yet. And my partner and I ended up switching to private financing because I couldn't hang on any longer because I needed the W-2 for the mortgage. And I gave up the mortgage and got private financing on it because I was like, I got to get out. Like, I can't do this. So, and just jumped off the deep end. So if you could go back and I guess if you had the choice, what would you say is like a comfortable time to leave your full-time W-2? Like for those listening to the podcast and they want to leave, what would you recommend to them something like that? I think the biggest thing, I mean, everyone's going to have a different comfort level, right? Like some people are going to be so nervous about being broke in their first year. We'll call it being broke in your first year. That's what I was. That if you leave your corporate job or whatever job and you have a small amount of money in the bank and for the next year, you're going to be so stressed over not having enough money that you can't actually function in order to work on your business and do all because money stress will completely hamper creativity, you know, the different things you could be doing. You don't want to stress yourself out that bad. If you are not as worried about risk, you know, one thing that helped me was one of the, actually, I guess Robert Kiyosaki said in a few of his books is he said, his idea about budgeting is if you're spending more than you're making, increase your means. You know, everyone's like, oh, cut your spending, all that. He's like, no, don't cut your spending, increase your means. And he said that, and I don't remember what the context was, but basically if you're spending more than you're making, that will light a fire under you in order to keep you going. And that's what happened with me is because as soon as I started making money, fast forward a few years, I got lazy and I was like, I mean, I don't really have to do a lot. I can just kind of hang out here. Like, you know, there, and so his point was valid is that when I was panicking, I was going, I was like, I am working hard. Like I am not stopping. That's great. But again, it's that balance for you personally of where's your comfort level. Like I was comfortable with the adrenaline and with the excitement. It wasn't, it was stressful, but I was comfortable with it. All of that aside, so kind of a personal assessment as far as like how much money do you have in the account? How many months could you live with no income? Figure that out for yourself. But going backwards a little bit before that decision is my thing would be for anyone doing it is have traction on something before you leave the job. Because I used to always say like I've had 173 business ideas and only one of them worked. And the difference with the one that worked is that I didn't pre-plan it. I didn't know that that was going to be the thing. Prior to that, I had all sorts of bright ideas. You know, us engineers, I'm like, oh, I have so many good ideas. I'll I'll buy a hotel and I'll do this and I'll I'll buy a self-storage facility. I'll do, this is how this will work and I'll create this whole business plan. But at the end of the day, nothing ever actually happened with it. And so I think a lot of people go, some people naturally have a thing that they can do or the skill that they have or whatever. But a lot of us don't start with that. And so when I left my corporate job, I had traction. I had made money doing this thing. It wasn't a lot of money, but there was proof in the pudding that A, I'd already made money doing it, and B, more people were wanting this service. 
And so make sure that there's some kind of proof in the pudding that whatever your business venture is going to be or whatever your investing is going to be or whatever actually already has some traction. Because I think it's very tempting for all of us to think, oh, well, this thing on paper would make total sense. Like, yeah, that would be perfect. This is how this is going to go. But we don't always know that for reasons we can't always explain. Like, just make sure there's traction before you even think about leaving. And then when you think about leaving, you know, what's your personal comfort level? I totally agree with that. I have some people who go into my meetup groups and they're thinking, okay, I'm going to leave my full-time job to do wholesaling or fix and flip. But they've never wholesaled. They've never fixed and flipped before. And so when they leave their job, suddenly they have no income and they're doing all the like learning while not having any income. So they're struggling really hard. Just as you said that, I wanted to like throw up a big sign that has like Mayday written in neon letters. Like, because again, wholesaling and flipping, it's funny you mentioned those two. It's like, what do you get when you, how to be a real estate investor? If you put it in Google, oh, wholesaling. No, you know, it's cheap. It's simple. It's easy. Best way to start ever. Everyone's like, oh my God. So it's like this fantasy pipe dream thing that I'm going to be a wholesaler. But again, if you have never wholesaled a property and never made a dime from wholesaling, don't leave your freaking job yet. Just you can still wholesale and it may work and it may be your ticket out, but you can start wholesaling around your job and make sure it's actually going to get traction. I could go on a whole rant about wholesaling, but I feel like that one in particular is marketed in such a way that it makes everyone think that they can do it. No problem. And it's not that you can't do it. It's just, first of all, you may not want to, but yeah, the marketing around that one, I feel like it gets people in trouble a lot. Right, exactly. And I think it's actually more difficult than flipping home because you have to talk to so many different sellers and you're marketing, you're spending a lot of money out there to do these efforts, right? Yeah, it's not as easy as people make it seem. It's a simple process, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Simple and easy don't always go hand in hand. Just because the understanding how it works is simple absolutely does not necessarily carry over to how simple it's going to be to actually do it. Yeah. And I liked your comment earlier about like not having too much money where you're chilling too hard and also not having not enough money where you're stressed out because I've been in that situation, right? Like you're right. Like when you don't have money and you have bills to pay, you get mentally frustrated. You can't think creatively. Yeah. All these things that you want to do, you just can't do because you have no energy because you're mentally sapped. Especially if you're a former engineer with control issues. Like I know I was. Also as a former engineer, you have income and you're like, okay. We have income and we're in control of our fate. Like even same with flying an airplane. If I need the airplane to do something, I make it do it. Entrepreneurship and investing, you can do the best that you can, but you can't necessarily make anything happen. You can't make that income come in. Again, you can try your best and you can do, you know, make smart decisions. But yeah, like for me, engineering and being a pilot were such controlled environments. Number one, I'm making money. And number two, I'm in control of everything I do and I'm in control of the solutions. And, you know, if an engineering problem exists, I have control over getting to that solution. It may be frustrating. It may be through, you know, line 27,000 in code, but I have the power to get there. And it's a very different mindset than the entrepreneurship and stuff. And yeah, it's, I think that's been one of the biggest challenges. And I would say I left too soon. I didn't have enough money in the bank account because I was really teetering that edge of being crippled by the panic of not knowing where my rent payment was going to come from and also designing my company kind of thing. Wow, that's crazy. I think I would be very uh, stressed out if I were in your situation. Us engineers, we, that's, that's kind of, that'd be, yeah. That'd be my assumption for most of the engineers. Yeah. So let's talk about your, your first real estate investments. You mentioned that you started buying in the middle of the crash. How did you have that confidence to start buying properties when everyone around you is telling you that this is probably not a good idea? I really didn't listen much to the naysayers. One of my favorite quotes in life is don't take advice from someone you wouldn't trade shoes with. And so like, let's say Robert Kiyosaki, for example, would I trade shoes with him? Absolutely. So what he writes in his books, I'm going to listen to that. And versus, you know, my neighbor down the street who made some dumb purchase, like, oh my God, real estate suck. You know, like you got to know where the voices are coming from. And the other big component for me, and this goes for entrepreneurship and investing in general, is I had read enough books where I realized it's such a mindset game because so many people, for example, are scared of failure. Well, it's all in how you look at failure. Like, is failure actually failure? No, it's an excuse to learn something and do it better the next time. And, you know, there's all these perspectives. And so I actually lost, so my very, technically my first investment was my own house in Atlanta. When I transferred out to California with Lockheed, it was during the crash, so I wasn't going to sell it. So I made it a rental property. So that was accidental. 
the second investment, which was my first intentional investment, I lost 40 grand on pretty quickly. And I even went through the whole thing of like, oh my God, real estate's stupid. This sucks. Like I just lost $40,000. Like I hate real estate. And it was a matter of perspective because fast forward 10, 11 years from that $40,000 loss, I can tell you that $40,000 has bought me everything I have today. It's bought my lifestyle, my company, my experience, everything about it. Like it feels like a small price to pay for that. And so again, it's not that nothing's ever going to go wrong. And that's especially, I love us engineers. Oh, I love engineers. Like it's okay when things go wrong. And so like I had that mindset thanks to the books I read and, you know, just kind of the big guys saying, you know, it was all these mindset tweaks. And so for me, it was all in the mindset. So, and I was always kind of a risk taker anyways. My thought was like, I can get myself out of anything kind of deal. And so it's like, well, I can try and be as smart as I can about what I'm investing in. And after that, well, you know, we'll see what happens. And yeah, the $40,000 totally got me down, but it didn't kill everything off either once I kind of came back from it. But during the crash, I didn't look at it as being risky at all. I saw everything as on sale because like everybody knows real estate always comes back. It always goes up. You know, if there's a gigantic dip, it's not going to be there forever. And so I knew that. And so it's like, well, you know, my first turnkey property, which was fully rehabbed with tenants in it, great neighborhood, it was $55,000. I knew that wasn't going to last for a while. I was like, I'll take it. And, you know, like I wanted to buy as much as I could during the crash versus, again, it's all about mindset education and just general education. Because if you know, for example, to buy a rental property based on cash flow, not on speculation, that's going to give you a very different outcome during a crash like 2008. You know, it's the mindset and education really that changes, in my opinion, everything. Because things that people are so fearful of, that can be changed with a little extra education. Oftentimes what we're scared of is when we don't have more knowledge about said thing. Mm-hmm. Can you go into a little bit more in detail about your $40,000 loss for your second property that you purchased? Yeah, well, that's a humbling one. So when I was sitting in my corporate job and I got the email notification, the reason that I clicked on it, so a few months before that, I live in Southern California, so it's expensive out here, and I was interested in real estate. So I'd gone out with a guy who was an agent and he, or I went out with him as I didn't go out with him and he happened to be an agent. I knew he was an agent. So I met up with him and said, Hey, I'm interested in looking at rental properties. So he showed me some properties down in Orange County. The cheapest one was like $270,000 and needed a full rehab. And I was like, well, how much would it rent for? And at this time I didn't know how to run numbers, but I was like, I don't totally get it. So I just kind of did away with those. And this thing that ended up in my email inbox said, invest in beach bungalows starting at $99,000. And I was like, oh, I like the beach. I love a bungalow. And I really like a $99,000 price tag compared to what I just looked at. And this was a pre-construction development in Nicaragua. And if you know me, you know that I like doing anything that will turn people's heads. And so, you know, investing in real estate in a third world country easily turns everyone's heads like, what are you doing? (laughs) And like, I love adventure. I love rebellious stuff. I love whatever. So I watched this webinar, honestly thinking absolutely nothing of it because I was like, it's either a scam or like, that's stupid. I would never invest in a third world. Like whatever. And it seemed really legit. And I messaged them just again. I was like, I'll prove it's a scam at some point. They send me the contract. Everything sounded great. Like this was a big development. Wyndham Hotels was in on it. Jack Nicholas Golf Course Design. This was not some like shammy, scammy thing. This was like a huge thing. And next thing I knew, I was signing on the dotted line. There were seller financing options. And I ended up buying two properties in this pre-construction thing, totaling $40,000 out of pocket. I think one was 30 and one was 10. One was a home site and one was this beach bungalow. And as famous developer stories go, the money just magically disappeared. I think suspicion started maybe two years after that. And like by three years, everyone's like, and private investors had put millions of their own dollars. For me to have only lost 40,000 was actually on the cheaper end of things. And like I said, this was not a small, I kind of felt dumb because I'm like, I'm the new investor and I just like, what an idiot. But there were big time investors in this who also lost a lot. So I was like, okay, well, at least, you know, I don't feel that stupid. But that was the first one. But the guys who were involved in this pre-construction thing uh, kind of 
like third party involved affiliates, they were, had already started in on turnkeys. They had been involved in turnkeys for a couple of years. And I didn't really think much of it because I'm like, oh, I'll buy a boring rental property in the States. Like that's not nearly as exciting as beach bungalows in a third world country. And the reason I got into turnkeys was because they said, you know, hey, we know you haven't really been interested in the turnkeys, but just so you know, the next big market is Atlanta and I'm from Atlanta. And I was like, oh, well, I do like Atlanta. Tell me more. And at that time, Atlanta really was, I mean, to date, one of the just craziest, best, highest return markets for, it lasted a couple of years, if not a little more. So that, because, you know, at $55,000 price tag, that property fully rehabbed was renting for nine seventy five a month. That is stupid cash flow. Like, I mean, that's brainless. And so then I really kind of got in on that. So I kind of left the shiny object thing and went with the more kind of proven long-term, like, okay, yes, it's not quite as exciting. Yes, the bells and whistles aren't quite as, you know, hip and hyped up, but like, it's a valid strategy. So that's where that shift came in. So, yep, lost 40000 right out of the gate. But, you know, I caution people with, and even people in the States with, the problem in Nicaragua is that the U.S. can't really get on that guy and get him in trouble. You know, in the States, if that happens, the FBI will be all over and all that kind of stuff. And there's only so much you can do in Nicaragua, which was really the downfall. But even the famous developer story happens in the States too. Yeah. Did it fail because of the economy or you think it's because of like bad actors? It was a bad actor. His marketing is so pretty. That should have been my first tip off. The marketing was so pretty. And it's funny, he's been thrown out of Nicaragua. He's not allowed back in right now. And he's still trying to do, like, get money for developing Nicaragua. And I'm like, first of all, who's going to give you money? Second, you're not even allowed in the country. What are you talking about? And it was 100% him. No one ever knew what happened to the money. It was just, there have been a lot of people very mad at him for a very long time. And before the money disappeared, Wyndham pulled out, Jack Nicholas pulled out. Everyone started kind of figuring out, like, there's a problem. Mm, got it. And so when you started getting the turnkey properties, I mean, you say your property in Atlanta is $55,000. I know Atlanta now is very, very hot. Oh, it's insane. So that same property is probably like, what, 200, 300? That one, the last I looked, oh, I just got comps on, I'm not going to pull up the email because I'm actually in the process of buying out my partner. So I've been running kind of the market values. I think that one came in like... 180, 200, something like that. There's another one. I mean, all of them, the appreciation has just sailed through the roof. But that's the thing, too. People are so like, I want to buy Atlanta. I'm like, okay, you got to understand about real estate markets. Like, there's a cycle. And sorry, you're on the other. Like, there's no cash flow for the most part left in Atlanta right now. And everyone's like, but Atlanta's the hottest market. I'm like, yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think the new strategy now is they're trying to go to the short term rental route. That way they can juice the returns by, you know, listing on Airbnb and whatnot. I think the short-term route can work great. My caution with everybody being that I live in on the west side of LA where Airbnb has been banned. So it's kind of like cool if you're going the short-term route, but my advice to people unsolicited, like whether they want it or not, is make sure that there's a long-term option in case something were to happen with the short-term. Like look at COVID, for example. Short-term rentals struggled for a long time. If you're paying some hefty mortgage and you have no vacationers, and, you know, hopefully we're not going to go through another global pandemic and all tourists stop. But I tell everyone, just make sure there's a long-term play there also in case the city cracks down on it, there's a pandemic, you know, whatever can happen. But yeah, my hesitation with short-term too is while it can work, it reminds me a lot of wholesaling where it's like the new big thing. I tell it, just be careful with the marketing of, you know, don't do it because everyone says you should be doing it. It seems to be very, very popular right now, especially in 2021, I think because of the whole resurgence. Which is funny because we just had a year and a half of like no short-term rentals. But I think that's what it is. It's like there's a resurgence coming on. Everybody wants it now. Yeah, like everyone was super optimistic about it in 2018, 2019, and then 2020, everyone got slapped in the face, right? But the ones who survived are doing very well because of all the people who are locked in, like sheltered in place, they want to like rent a home nearby so they can have like a small vacation and so like all these like rental properties are doing really well yeah i mean i don't know if it's gonna last so i'm always like mm. see that's the thing is like you gotta like uh just have a contingency plan right just make me sleep better about your investing just have a contingency plan and then if it works out great because what i don't like to see is people get all sucked into the market and i don't want to call it marketing because that makes it sound like it's false it is accurate that that can be very profitable but it is a highly marketed strategy 
And it crushes me to the bone with new investors in general when you don't know what you don't know when you're starting in real estate. And that's fine. We all start there. You have to figure it out. Like that's part of this industry. But it just crushes me when people get, I don't say duped, but it's a form of kind of getting duped, maybe not intentionally duped, but they get duped into thinking, you know, the things can be perfect and they put all this money and stuff into it and then it just doesn't work out. Like that literally crushes my soul to see other people go through that. And that's why I like try and shout from the rooftops of like, yeah, short-term rentals can be fine, but like just know a little more, have a contingency plan, like just create a cushion for yourself so you don't end up in a pickle, you know, just be smart about what you're doing and don't dive in just because everyone says dive in. Right. And like you mentioned, things change, right? Markets are cyclical. What are you seeing is, I guess, a, a good start for people who are just starting in 2022? Well, I mean, the only promising thing I'm hoping about 2022 is that the inventory is going to start coming back. That's been the biggest challenge over the last year. Like some of my favorite turnkey providers have just been flat out of inventory. Like, you know, I heard a statistic, this has been a few months ago now, and I don't know if it was exactly correct or if it's accurate now, but when I heard it, it was that there are officially more licensed real estate agents in the United States than there are available properties. That's saying a lot. Like that's, that's a problem. And so What I would say for 2022 is I'm hoping that the inventory starts turning around because that is kind of step one for doing whatever. But the other thing I would say is really what I would say for any year is I know shiny object syndrome. Like you wave a third world country beach bungalow in my face for $99,000. I can't tell you how fast I jumped into that pool. I was like, I'm in. You know, that is a temptation with real estate in general because it's exciting. We all want a property. We're all doing this to get a property. We want these things, but because we didn't learn this in school, because we don't know what we don't know, my stance is that you've got to take a little time to get the education because it doesn't even take a ton of education. It just takes the basics. And if you take the time to get that, number one, you're going to increase your chances for success way higher, like tenfold higher. But number two, I think you can be successful to greater capacities because the more you learn, the more creative you can get. So if you know the wholesaling thing, like, oh, you find a distressed property, you find a buyer who wants it, da 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 great. But just knowing that is not how you're going to become some gajillionaire wholesaler. Like, you've, you want to know more intricacies about things in order to make it your own. None of our journeys through real estate are going to be the same. Mine's not going to be the same as yours. It doesn't matter how similar our backgrounds or things. Even if you're in turnkeys and used to be an aerospace engineer and I'm in turnkeys, still our paths are going to be different. That is one of the best things about this industry and one of the most frustrating too, because you can't just copy somebody else's path. And so for 2022, I would say as with any year, make sure you take the time to get some education. Like really just have some minor handle on what you're doing. Number two, keep an eye out for inventory. But number three, at the same time with all of that said, don't wait forever either because like I won't go into details unless you want me to on this one, but like a rental property, for example, makes money in five different ways. You know, most people know cash flow and appreciation, but there's tax benefits, some other stuff. And one of those is hedging against inflation. The more inflation rockets, the more you profit on your rental property. Well, guess what's happening right now? Inflation's going through the roof. And so I've talked to a lot of people who are like, well, I haven't really found a property that totally meets my criteria. So I'm going to kind of sit around and wait. And I'm like, dude, first of all, there's not a sign in the world that prices are going to get any cheaper than they are now. And inflation's going through the roof. Like as long as you sit around, you're missing out on profits. My big caveat is don't dive in just because I said that without the education. You know, that's that fine balance is, yes, it's exciting to get in. But if you get the education, don't get stuck in analysis paralysis because now's the time to move. The deals aren't going to, in my opinion, get much better than they are right now for quite a while. So that's my long-winded 2022 summary. That's awesome. Yeah, I usually tell people that when they're first getting started, do something very similar, right? Go to meetup groups and then talk to people, and then you can find out the different types of strategies you like. Like you mentioned, some people like turnkeys, some people like wholesaling. Just find the people who are doing what you want to do, and then 
learn from those particular individuals. Yeah. And one of the biggest things with that I've run into with coaching, someone recently asked me, like, what are the biggest pain points people come to me? And one of the absolute biggest, I would say every person that calls me has some level of this, of overwhelm. There's just so much information on the internet, they can't get traction to get started. And exactly what you just said is one of the easiest ways to get started is go to a meetup group, go to whatever, and just listen to what everyone's doing. And think about your own goals. And like, let's say that you want passive income and you want time freedom and all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? Wholesaling's probably not going to be your thing. Or let's say you have a full-time job and five kids at home. You probably don't have time for wholesaling. Like when you start to hear about all the different strategies, you can start kind of like checking the box towards which ones, okay, that one might be a possibility. Okay, that one's definitely not. You can start whittling down. And now maybe you are down to like three different strategies. And you're like, okay, well, let's look at these three which one might be the best thing. So yeah, it's, you know, start basic. And if your goal is $5,000 a month in passive income, great. But you've got to work backwards a little bit and come up with an easier starting point because you're not going to go from zero to 5000 a month in passive income. You got to start at a different point from that. So yeah, exactly what you said is just start easy. Just go listen to what everybody's doing. Take some mental notes. That's why I did to get out of corporate. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just started listening to everything I could find. And I started kind of like, oh, oh, oh. I should look more into that one. Oh, that, that, mm -mm, that's not going to work. And, you know, that's how I kind of narrowed it down to what I ended up doing. So let's talk about turnkey properties in particular. Why did you decide to go into a turnkey versus, I guess, trying to do it yourself and like burn a property? The absolute biggest reason was, like I said, right before Nicaragua happened, I was starting to look into properties because I was willing to do the work. Like if I needed to burr a property, and even at this time, I don't even think the burr acronym, I feel so ancient. I don't even think the burr acronym had started yet because I remember when that showed up on Bigger Pockets for the first time and I was like, what in the hell? I was like, that's the worst acronym on the planet. I never remember how many R's are in it. I, people, I say it and people are like, what are you saying? Anyways, that's my rant. I assumed I had to do all those things for real estate and I was pursuing looking into it. I was willing to do it. I knew inside of me that I wasn't really interested in doing it, but if that's what it was going to take, so be it. And then I just kind of wasn't connecting with it a whole lot. And then Nicaragua came in and distracted me. And then all of a sudden I hear this turnkey thing and I was like, well, what's a turnkey? And they're like, everything's done for you. And I was like, Haha, now that, tell me more. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to give myself another job. I want passive income. I, I want the work done for me, not just because I'm lazy about it, but also I'm very aware of my skill set. And while managing contractors isn't my skill set, it depletes my sanity at a very rapid rate. And as far as doing the work myself, I'm not handy at all. Everyone's like, but you're an engineer. I was like, that is exactly why I'm not handy. <laughs> like, it's a different thing. I'm not good at that stuff and I don't like it. And so after I heard about the turnkey thing, I was like, ow. That gives me everything I wanted without any of the stuff that I didn't want. And yeah, there's downsides to turnkeys. You're going to pay more for them. You don't have that immediate equity forced appreciation thing. But again, it's a trade-off. And it goes back to my message with people of there's a lot of arguments against turnkey, but guess what? Turnkey worked for me. It was in my skill set. I was able to accelerate with turnkeys and excel with turnkeys in a way that, I mean, I'd be swimming upstream to burr properties. I could do it. And maybe at some point I will do it just as kind of a side project. Like, let's see what happens. But it wouldn't bring me happiness. It's not really accomplishing my goals. Like, it, it just wasn't my thing. So the turnkey thing, it was just more of once I heard about it, it just fit a lot more of what I was looking for. And it went from there. So who do you think turnkey properties are best for? Like, what's the ideal personal profile? I think there are three teetering four categories. One category I almost kind of tie together. Either you live in a really expensive market and you can't buy for cash flow, so you need to buy long distance. Turnkey, I think, is great for that unless you somehow have the resources and time and availability to manage a rehab type of situation. The category that's similar to that is if you're working a nine to five job and you have five kids at home and you don't have time for it. So whether it's location or time restrictions, turnkeys can be great because your only job with a turnkey is managing the turnkey, which is not the property itself, but the process, which is doing your due diligence, make sure you're checking up on everything and verifying that you're getting what you're told you're getting. And then just keeping an eye out for the property manager because property managers aren't perfect. And if they stop behaving at some point, you know, you got to be willing to do something about that. So if you have a time or location restriction, whether it's for cash flow and location or entry price or whatever, or time, you just don't have the time to do the work. That's 
one slash two categories of people. The second category is regardless of what strategy you're trying to get into, I think turnkeys can be phenomenal for brand new investors because let's say you want to become God's gift to flippers or burr investors or whatever. Great. But if you dive straight into, let's say you find this distressed shack and you're going to do this big rehab and you're going to take on this whole burr project, you almost, when you don't have experience yet, you are almost forced to skip over learning the basics and the fundamentals of investing because you're so busy with the advanced stuff, the rehab, negotiations, whatever you have to do, the advanced task, you skip over the basics, like just learn how to run the numbers, learn how to do proper due diligence. I don't care what strategy you're doing. You have got to learn proper due diligence. That is the one thing that will make or break every investment you do. Well, guess what? You're not going to have time to learn proper due diligence because you're going to be so busy swinging that hammer and then just management in general. And so like, I think that even if you want to become a flipper or a burr investor, if you start with one turnkey, because the hard stuff is done for you, it gives you that window and that opportunity to learn the basics, learn how to run those numbers, learn how to manage the property manager, learn how the you know everything works, learn that due diligence. The due diligence being, I could just go on on that one. Like that, that's such a big one. And even when I started. The level of due diligence that I understand now versus 10 years ago when I bought my first turnkeys, you learn it over time. It's not just something that straightforward. And so you get the chance to learn all of that stuff, which I think once you learn those things, you can take forward into any other strategy and just change the fate for the better in whatever you want to do. So new investors. And then the third group is the less obvious group. If you are a flipper or a burr investor or whatever, you only have so many resources. Like you only have so much time. Let's say you're flipping properties. Well, how many properties at one time can you personally flip? Whether you're using cruise or whatever, you're going to be limited on that. And I've known a lot of flippers or whatever strategy who are doing, they're at their max capacity for how much they can do at once, but they have a lot of money sitting around. Okay, well, instead of the money sitting in the bank, toss it into a turnkey, which is not going to take up your resources or your time, and let your money do something smart for you while you continue to do your other project. So that one is not quite as obvious. So just kind of in summary, the time and location restrictions, anyone with either of those, turnkeys can be great because it takes that load off. Brand new investors because it allows you that time to learn the basics that will help you in any other strategy as well. And then the people who are at max capacity for whatever strategy they're doing and just want to dump their money into properties without having to do all the work. Mm-hmm. And how does one go about finding a good turnkey provider? That is also hard. Many years ago, someone on BiggerPockets started, I think it was like turnkeyreviews.com because that was the famous question. Like, first of all, where do you find them? And also, how do you know what turnkey providers are good or legit? You know, there's been some horror stories over the years. And that website, I don't think it actually really ever made it. It's weird with turnkeys because like there's nowhere really to read reviews Bigger Pockets is one of the big spots, but honestly, Bigger Pockets is so anti turnkeys that I feel like the companies that are left being talked about on Bigger Pockets are actually, in my opinion, far from the best companies. I don't want to say turnkeys are more underground, but you know, it's kind of what it feels like with Bigger Pockets. A couple of years ago, I started the Turnkeys Facebook group, partially with this being the motivation of helping people talk about what providers are you having good experiences for, ask your questions, because I wanted to bring it back above ground and in an environment where fewer people hated turnkeys, like <laughs> Bigger Pockets. So, like the Turnkeys Facebook group, people are constantly asking, like, hey, what markets do you recommend? Hey, what providers are you having good luck for? So, it's an open forum. Turnkey providers are actually not allowed in the group because we all, you know, they're going to just try and sell their own properties. I want it to be a very neutral, you know, let everyone talk very freely. You can always reach out to me directly. I can make recommendations. You can Google turnkey providers, turnkey companies. There's turnkey providers and there's turnkey marketing companies. So there's a lot out there, but it is a little tricky sometimes to kind of figure your way out through it if you haven't already been in there. Mm -hmm. And can you give us a typical turnkey deal? like in terms of the numbers? They really vary. So right now the properties, the turnkeys I'm working with the most are in Birmingham. And the interesting thing about Birmingham, which is true for the entire state, the taxes and insurance are so low in Birmingham that the cash flow is actually pretty high. Like a lot of people always go on about they want properties that are going to meet the 1% rule. 
well, they see these properties in Birmingham. They're like, well, it doesn't meet the 1% rule. But I actually have compared a 1% rule. I think it was in St. Louis property with one of these Birmingham properties and the cash flow on the Birmingham property was way higher than the 1% rule because those expenses are so low. So Birmingham right now, like, and generally I would say that most good turnkeys now are in the, they used to be in the like 80 to 120,000 range. Now in all the markets, I really don't see much under a hundred. So I'd say like your average turnkeys can be between a hundred and $150,000 the rents are probably going to be somewhere between the 1% rule and say on the 150, maybe like 1300, 1350, maybe 1250, just depending on the neighborhood. It's always going to vary with how nice the neighborhood is and all that kind of stuff. The Birmingham properties are mostly getting a 10% cash on cash return or higher, minus a few of the flood zone properties. St. Louis, last time I was working there, I'd say it's somewhere between 8 and 12 to 15% cash on cash, but those are really the highest cash flow markets. You also have a lot of the turnkey providers moved into new construction. When the inventory left, like I used to have a great turnkey provider in Chicago and he ran out of inventory almost a year and a half ago now. And so new construction has become a new thing. But with new construction, you're going to get way nicer neighborhoods, brand new houses, way just nicer everything. But you're also going to be looking at like a 1% to 3% cash on cash return. And some people are like, oh, no. In my mind, there's a trade-off for that because you have a lot more, you have a lot higher appreciation potential. You have higher tenant quality. It's not a deal breaker in my mind. But yeah, I mean, turnkeys, you're going to range anywhere on the low end from with the new construction as one to 3% cash on cash up to, I think some of the Birmingham and St. Louis properties may be able to squeak out like a 15 to 20% on a couple of the steals. The new construction properties often are in more appreciating markets. Birmingham is not a high appreciation market. St. Louis is not a high appreciation market. So then you're also talking about whether you're looking at a stable versus growth market. Yeah. I've been to Birmingham a couple of years ago. And I remember there's like, there's a lot of opportunity there, mostly because there's like these tornadoes that come and ruin houses. So then of course you can go in there and fix them up. Score! Yeah, I mean, whereas like in the Bay Area, right? Even a really crappy house still goes for a million dollars, which is ridiculous. I'm like, wait, you can get a million dollar house in San Francisco? Where? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that shack? Like, oh, come on now. That was five years ago. Cool. So what are you investing in nowadays? Right the second, nothing. Eyeballing a couple of the Birmingham properties, I've had a hard time letting them go to some of the buyers. I'm like, oh, man, I kind of want that one. But I'm actually in the process right now of buying out. So when I started buying turnkeys in Atlanta in 2011, I was newer to the block. So I bought some properties on my own, but I also brought in a partner. He was the cash partner. And so I'm in the process right now of buying him out. And, you know, he kind of wants to move on and do his own thing. And I, I love these properties. I'm like, I want to get a little greedy on these things. So I've been on pause just because I'm in the middle of that buyout. We're trying to figure out those numbers right now. And a couple of years ago, some partners and I went in on a duplex local to me here in Venice, which actually goes against everything I've ever preached about how to buy a rental property. But it was a pretty hefty price tag. So that tied up a lot of capital for a while. Now it's the buyout. So it's really kind of a Instead of buying new stuff, shy of maybe a couple Birmingham properties may come into play here pretty soon, I've been doing more of like a cleanup, if you will. Like, you know, I dove in so fast and it's like, okay, now how can I kind of get organized? Because honestly, buying my partner out of those turnkeys are so profitable. Buying him out alone is almost like a brand new investment because now I'm doubling my investment there and I wouldn't even be able to find properties that have cash flow like that now. So in a way, it's like I'm investing again, but then I'm also kind of not either. Can you talk a little bit about how, I guess, partnership buyouts work? Because I've never done one before. <laughs> That's a good, we are, I don't know yet. How do you like have that conversation and what's like a quote unquote fair representation of the value? Like do you get an appraisal for today's value and pay him half of that or like? I don't know. How do you guys do it? We're figuring that out as we speak. I actually just sent him the recent comps that I got last night even. And what we're trying to figure out is, you know, a lot of this is going to depend on what your original agreement with the partner is. So our original agreement was he brings the cash. I get the mortgage and do all the work. We consider that a 50-50 split. So everything, income and expenses, whether it's the monthly cash flow, a sale, repairs, everything is split 50-50, end of story. So for the buyout, what we're looking at is 
what's 50-50 of the equity in these properties? Because I owe him 50% of the equity. Because if we were going to sell it right now, we would split that income 50-50. And so I have a friend who's an agent in Atlanta, and I just had him run all of the comps. One of the houses was really tricky because the only comps were in really nice. It's this one just janky street right in the middle of all sorts of nice stuff. I mean, dilapidated houses. There's a homeless encampment next to the house. It's been a great performer over the years. But running comps was impossible because it was like, oh, well, this house is worth about $320,000. I was like, there's no way we could get $320,000 for this shack on a shacky street with a homeless encampment. Like, how do we figure out what could we feasibly sell it for? So that was actually a holdup is we were stuck on this one property of how do we value that. But as an agent, he just ran his comps because I told him, I said, treat it like we're going to sell all of those today. What would we list them for what we'd expect to get. That's the number I want to go off of. And, you know, it's such a good lesson in Zillow because I can plug all those in in Zillow. But when you actually dive in, Zillow doesn't know there's a homeless encampment right there. It only sees these, you know, it said it's worth $320,000. I'm like, it is absolutely not worth $320,000. And so we had talked about getting actual appraisals, but we all agreed, like, we don't really want to pay the cost for that just because it's probably not going to be freakishly different. And plus appraisers, it's hit or miss anyways. So both me and the partner agreed, like, let's get an agent to do valid comps and we're just going to run it off of that. Then we have to figure out how do we take off the remaining mortgage payment, you know, what's left on the mortgage balance. And then, so that's what he's actually looking at that today to come up with his proposal. My assumption is, well, I'll pay him cash, you know, for the 50% difference of the equity. I don't know if that's exactly how it works. His accountant apparently does a lot of buyouts and partnerships and stuff, and he was supposed to be chiming in on this to help us, but he's been so busy. We started this process about six months ago, eight months ago, and we've given up on Mr. Accountant Guy because he's just not, we got to figure this out on our own. So we're in the process of figuring all that out as we speak, which is a new skill set. I'm like, oh, I'll let you know what I come up with on that one. And then do you plan on like refinancing another property to pay all this off, or do you just haven't have enough savings to be able to buy them out? It'll be a cash purchase, yeah, or a cash buyout, yeah. Okay, very cool. Well, Ali, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I think this has been super entertaining. I, I've learned so much about turnkeys and partnerships. and Yeah, thanks for having me. I can't believe I Boeing and Northrop, like, hello, it's like the perfect trifecta. Exactly, right? So, Ali, how can people find out more about you? So, I actually set up a link. I can't remember if I mentioned the show. Last year, I put my first book out. It's called Not Your How-To Guide to Real Estate Investing, Life Lessons on Hacking Your Mind Before You Hack Your Wallet. It was like my quarantine project. And it's more of a mindset book. Like it actually gives you steps on how to kind of really get your footing, get started. I interview several successful investors on different strategies so you can get more of a day in the life feel of what do these strategies actually require skill-wise, time-wise, effort-wise, you know, to help you kind of navigate. And so I tried to put some personality in it. I tried to be humorous. I feel like real estate investing books are just dreadfully boring. So I wrote that book, put it out last year. It's done really well. So I set up a link for your folks at my company's name is Hipster Investments. So if you go to hipsterinvestments.com slash everything real estate, all three words together, you can get a free digital copy of the book. If you're like me and you need a paperback, there's an Amazon link there. But for a digital copy, it is there and yours. And so also too at that link, it has my contact information also. All right. Well, Allie, thank you again so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And hopefully anyone that wants to learn more, they can reach out to you through that link and uh, find out more. Absolutely. Yeah, I love talking to people. Anything I can help with. Like I said, I've been doing a lot of coaching and it doesn't have to be turnkeys at all. So anything I can help with. I want to help other people get an easier start into this somewhat complicated industry than I know I had. So if I can help do that for anybody, that's my mission. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.